Have you ever stopped to consider that three of the Ten Commandments are about stealing? I mean, obviously there is one that's pretty direct. Don't steal. But what about coveting? If you act on coveting your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's goods, that's stealing, isn't it? And if you just covet but don't act on it, is that a sin? Jimmy Carter said it was when he lusted in his heart, in other words, committed telepathic infidelity. So is coveting worth two whole commandments? Or is God finding three different ways to say the same thing? Or is it that each member of the Trinity is speaking independently? Was God saying that it's a sin if I covet my neighbor's F-150? Should I look at it and pretend that it's a Ford Pinto? Is it bad if I think, hey, I'd like to be in that? Was God saying that it's a sin if I think my friend's wife is hot? What am I supposed to do when I see her in short shorts? Pretend that she got hit with an ugly stick? Is it bad if I think, hey, I'd like to be in that? The fact that just around one-third of the commandments are about stealing is significant. It says something about the human condition. We may not be programmed to steal, most of us anyway, but maybe we're programmed to at least consider stealing. After all, we are animals, and animals steal from each other all the time. Take three dogs. Give each dog his own bowl of food. Turn the dogs loose and watch what happens when the first dog to empty his bowl sees that his fellow dogs still have some food left. Dogs are not likely to demonstrate canine political correctness. So here are some questions. Have you ever shoplifted anything? If yes, how many times? Once? Twice? More than twice? How did it make you feel at the time? Did you feel differently later? Did you need to steal it? Did you keep it? Did you give it away? Did you throw it away? I'll ask the same question again. Have you ever shoplifted anything? If no, did you want to? So, why didn't you? Were you afraid of being caught? Did your conscience kick in? Was it a combination of both? Do you now wish you had? John had shoplifted many times, usually small stuff which could be easily hidden at home or stuff of little value which he'd just throw away. His favorite stores were the Western Auto, Henry's Toys, and Chicks, a variety store in a small standalone building just across the street from the mill. Chicks was the easiest mark. That's thief speak, because the owner, store manager, stock boy, and counter clerk were all Chick himself. Of course, the same could be said of Henry's toys, but many of the toys Henry sold were simply too large to be easily concealed inside a shirt, under a jacket, or down the front of your pants. Chick, on the other hand, sold a lot of smalls, more thief speak, which made Chick's an easier mark than Henry's. However, the fact that Chick himself was almost universally liked, well, in the Frenchtown universe anyway, presented a bit of a conscience complication that John had to overcome, which he did regularly. Chick's was always busy just before shift changes, when workers stopped in for a coffee and Danish in the morning and a Coke and a ringding in the afternoon, or just after shift changes, when Chick's sold beer by the bottle, along with pretzels and chips. Dinner for some. Breakfast for others. 
John avoided those busy times. For many of us while in elementary school, Chicks was a mandatory stop on the way home. Chick always had hot cocoa on cold days. I think he just heated up some chocolate milk, but we didn't care because he had those little marshmallows in a bowl. And lemon ice on hot days. And I swear to you, he had the best lemon ice I ever tasted. I'd kill for a Chick's lemon ice even now. We went there mostly to buy trading cards and candy. Baseball cards and airplane cards were our favorites. Each package contained ten cards and a thin slab of very dry bubblegum. We almost always threw the bubblegum away immediately. Someday, an urban archaeologist prospecting in the area where Chicks once stood is going to wonder at the two-foot-thick concrete layer of petrified bubblegum he'll find just outside of what was the entrance to Chicks. John didn't know why he stole things, but it seemed as though he'd always done it. We knew about it, of course. And we asked him about it, too, but he couldn't answer because he just didn't have one. Joanne called it compulsive behavior, and that didn't sound as bad. We told John that we wouldn't help him, and we didn't. At least not on purpose. The trouble was that sometimes you'd help him, but you didn't even know it. Like, for instance, John would pick something up to examine it, and he'd remove the price tag. Then he'd say to one of us who was approaching the counter to pay for something, Ask Chick how much for this. There's no price. And we would ask while paying. Once Chick had rung us up, he'd come over with his little price gizmo to retag the item. By the time he returned to the counter, the stack of baseball card packs had gotten just a little shorter, or a few fireballs had disappeared from their glass bowl. Chick never noticed because the thefts were small, but it wasn't the size of the theft that made a difference to John. It was the theft itself. Most of the time, even we didn't realize we'd been accomplices until later, sometimes not at all. We'd get angry when he told us, so I think he stopped telling us. We'd even talk about returning the things he'd taken, but how would we explain it without getting ourselves in trouble? Gee, Chick, we found it on the sidewalk outside. How many times would that work? Joanne even asked Ruth about it during one of their lessons. Ruth said that she knew and had known for several years. So had their mom. John's birth mom had pretty much abdicated the role of mother in Ruth's favor, choosing instead to live with her then-husband wherever he was deployed. That left Ruth to pay the rent, keep house, and be, if not a mom, at the least a mom figure for her younger brother. Ruth said that she'd even asked their family doctor, who had said something about John trying to steal attention or affection, maybe. I didn't understand that stuff, but Joanne said that Ruth thought there was a hole in John's life and he was trying to fill it up with the things he stole. She thought that John especially missed having a dad because he never even sent John a birthday card, much less a Christmas present. Ruth used to buy him a present and put, from dad, on the card. That was something I sort of could understand, because sometimes I used to pretend that I didn't have a dad either. That was easy for me because he wasn't around much. That made me sad, too. Do you ever think sad things just to make yourself sad on purpose? I do. Sometimes I'll imagine that somebody I really like suddenly died, like Tommy, for instance. Does this make me weird? I I mean, we watch a funny TV show to make us feel happy. We go to see a horror movie to make us feel afraid. So why would it be wrong to want to feel sad, just to know what it feels like, I mean? St. Patrick's was the perfect place for me to make myself feel sad. Something about the hard wooden benches and the marble columns and the life-size statues and the cold stone floor... And the little lighted thingy that hangs on the wall to remind you that God is home. And the huge Jesus on a cross hanging right there in front, 
looking down at all of you with painted blood on his forehead and hands and feet and coming out of his side. Boy, that'll certainly lighten your mood. Jesus must have worked out, by the way, because cross or no cross, he was ripped. Picture a fat Jesus. Not easy, is it? Fat Elvis? Yeah. Fat Jesus? Nope. Anyhow, St. Patrick's was the perfect place for me to make myself feel sad, especially if I was bored, which I was most of the time at St. Patrick's. Imagining how I would feel if I suddenly didn't have a dad anymore made me think about John. Did he miss having a dad? Maybe he didn't, because his dad had never really been a part of his life. Then again, the rest of us all had dads, so maybe he did. How would we even know? Did he feel jealous when we did something with our dads? Tommy's dad took him fishing all the time. Tommy told us he didn't really like fishing, especially the parts we had to put the worm on the hook where you had to take the hook out of the fish's mouth. But he said he still liked that he was with his dad. And Patsy's dad would show him things about car engines when he had a backyard project. My dad never had much time for me because he was working such long hours. But at least I had my grandfather. But John didn't have a grandfather either. I always felt sorry for John on Father's Day and at Christmas. None of us ever said something like, I have to buy something for my dad, or this is a present from my dad, even if it was. We never talked about that around John. We all liked him. We wanted him to stay in our group, the Fab Four Plus One. But he knew that when he went shopping, he was on his own. I guess being a friend means that you ignore things like that, things like John's shopping, even if he dragged us into it sometimes. Still, we wished he would stop. John said that Joanne was helping Ruth. He knew that. He also knew that Demetrius would pound him if he said anything about it outside of us, so he kept his mouth shut. He didn't know that Ruth was helping Joanne, however, although he did notice once that Ruth headed off to Joanne's once with her books and her makeup case. But then Annette came on the Mickey Mouse Club and he forgot all about it, because to us, Annette and sex were synonymous. I don't remember who first explained sex to me. My mom tried, but she didn't get very far. I already told you about the picture she drew. It looked more like an onion than a womb. Anyway, she seemed embarrassed by the whole thing. If I had to guess who really explained it to me, I would probably pick some of the kids at school, likely the same ones who told me that Santa Claus was really my parents and that the Easter Bunny was made up too. I remember that when the mechanics of sex were described, I simply couldn't believe it. I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. I mean, when you stop and think about it objectively, it really is pretty absurd, isn't it? He does what? With what? Where? You've got to be kidding me. What finally clinched it was when somebody asked, haven't you ever seen dogs doing it? And of course, I had. When I asked my parents about it, I was told that the dogs were just playing. But I sensed that something else was going on. Now I knew about the something else. We, the Fab Four, we talked about it quite a bit when Joanne wasn't around, each of us adding a little something that we'd heard or seen until a composite picture took shape. And when it finally did, other things that we'd heard and seen and felt, especially felt, came into focus. No wonder we kept watching the Mickey Mouse show to see Annette. That epiphany turned us all into sex bloodhounds. Suddenly, almost overnight, we saw sex everywhere. In movies, sex. On TV, sex. On billboards, sex. In magazine ads, sex. We were surrounded by it. We were drowning in sex. 
and those Sears Roebuck catalogs that came in the mail with their drawings of girdles and bras? Serious sex. It had been there right in front of all this time. How could we have missed it for so long? But we saw it now. (laughs) Boy, did we see it now. We even secreted away some of our favorite images, hid them in private places where moms would never stumble over them, even when spring cleaning. Or so we thought. Ruth just flat out told John that he should go to the dance. She used the argument that all his friends were going, and that he'd look weird if he stayed home. His counter-argument was that he'd say he was sick. Her counter-argument was that being sick might work with some kids, but the rest of them would know he was chicken. He then said that it wouldn't be cool to go. She said it would be more uncool if his friends knew he was staying home alone to watch TV, and she would be sure they knew. He told Ruth that I had a date. Priscilla. That Tommy had a date. Carlene. That Patsy would probably take his cousin Maria. Patsy wouldn't take Maria and her mustache to a dogfight. And that he couldn't go without a date. At that, Ruth pounced. What about Joanne? John was so surprised by this that he couldn't speak. He just stared at Ruth with his mouth open. Finally, he gathered himself. I'm not going to that dance with her or with anybody. He crossed his arms. As far as he was concerned, the matter was settled. How about if I give you two good reasons why you should go? Here's the first. She strode determinedly to the telephone and dialed a number. When it was answered on the other end, she said, Dimitri, what we talked about. Talk to him. And she handed the receiver to John, who put it to his ear. Demetrius spoke. Johnny, Ruth told me that she was going to talk to you about going with Joanne. She wants me to explain to you in a nice way about why this is a good chance for you to act like a young man and that this will be your first official date. It's part of growing up, and we all have to do it sooner or later. You're going to tell her that that's what I said when I hang up. But what I'm really going to tell you is this. You owe your sister. She does everything for you, and you know it. She cooks, she cleans, she washes, she takes care of you when you're sick, she buys you new clothes when you need them, she even looks the other way when you take things. Yeah, she knows about that too. Now she's asking you to do something for her. And if you don't invite that girl, I'll tell a couple of my buddies to beat the living shit out of you and to do it when I'm out with her. That way, she won't blame me, and I'll tell her later that I found out it was because they caught you stealing something from somebody they like. So do it, or else. And with that, Demetrius hung up. John handed the receiver to Ruth, who replaced it in the cradle, all the while staring at her brother whose arms had recrossed. Then she said, That's the first reason. Here's the second. With that, she picked up her makeup case, opened it, and withdrew a group of clippings. It was John's secret sex stash. Time stopped. Nothing else was said. Nobody moved. John's face grew hot, and then very hot. He looked down, and Ruth knew she'd won. She handed in the clippings and said, Next time, hide him better. John went through all five stages of Dr. Kubler-Ross. At first, he pretended that what had just happened hadn't happened. One look at his sex stash told him that it had. Then he got really angry at Ruth for trapping him by threatening him with Demetrius and at himself for not being more careful with his stash. There wasn't much point in being angry, though, because Demetrius wasn't going to go away, and neither was his stash. 
Then he started to think that maybe he could blackmail Ruth into backing off, but he couldn't come up with something to hold over her head like that. If she'd been cheating on Demetrius, that would definitely have been blackmailable, but she wasn't. He felt defeated and spent a couple of hours sulking, which got him nowhere but bored. He even considered doing a little shopping to cheer himself up, but the others had really been on him about that lately, and besides, it was getting almost too easy, and the thrill was now gone. So, finally, reluctantly, he accepted the inevitable. He was cornered, and he knew it. He needed to lash out. He decided that there was still a way to get revenge. He would take Joanne to the dance all right, but he would have a lousy time. He would hate every minute of it, and Joanne would too. He'd hate the decorations, the punch, the music, the cookies. He'd hate everything about it. He'd hate wearing a jacket and tie. And he'd hate that Joanne was wearing a dress. And he'd hate the dress, too, just for good measure. He'd get even with Ruth for making him miserable. By making himself even more miserable. That thought gave him a moment of satisfaction, but only a moment, before he acknowledged that it was an incredibly childish way to think, even for him. It wouldn't be fair to Ruth, and it certainly wouldn't be fair to Joanne, whom he liked and wouldn't treat that way. He and the others had made her cry once. He couldn't bear the thought of making her cry again. And with that, he resigned himself to thinking about how to ask her. John caught up with Joanne a few days later. On their way home from school, they made small talk until he plucked up the courage to broach the subject. So, listen, are you thinking about going to the dance? The snowball? Is that what they're calling it? Yeah, the snowball. Haven't you seen the posters? I guess. So, are you going? Well, I'd like to go. I got asked. Uh, Oh. Who asked you? Jimmy Vella. Jimmy Vella from Windsor Street? He's just a kid. He's a seventh grader. So? Tommy's taking Carlene and she's in seventh grade. Oh. Yeah, I, I forgot. I mean, if an 8th grade guy can invite a 7th grade girl, why can't a 7th grade guy invite an 8th grade girl? Besides, we'd just be going as friends. So, you've already got a date then? Yes and no. What does that mean? I told him that I'd have to let him know because someone else had already asked me. Who else? I I mean, I'm just curious and all. Nobody else. He asked me two weeks ago, and I just didn't want to say yes right away. Oh. Uh, Playing hard to get, huh? Sorry. That didn't come out right. Ruth was saying that maybe we could go together. Ruth said that? Yeah. I like Ruth, but it's not her business. Okay. I'll tell her. No, 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 don't don't say it like that. I, I know she means well. She likes you. She likes that you're helping her. Is that what Ruth wants? About us, I mean. Yeah. What do you want? I hate things like that. Dances and parties. Why? It's not cool. Stealing other people's stuff isn't cool. Using your friends to help isn't cool. Yeah, I know. I'm going to stop. When? I already did. For real? Yeah. Good. Yeah. So why is the dance uncool? I don't know. 
You have to get all dressed up so you start off uncomfortable even before you get there. And then you have to pretend like you're having a good time even when you're hating it. It's so phony. Everybody is acting phony. Just because you're hating it doesn't mean everybody else is hating it. Most people look like they're having a good time because they are. I guess. I don't like the dancing part. I thought all girls like to dance. I don't really know how. Tommy and Carlene do because they took that class. Ask your mom to show you. Do you know how to dance? No. Couldn't you ask a friend to show you? Like who? Ask Ruth. She knows how to dance. She's a good dancer. She puts on Hartford Bandstand sometimes in the afternoon, and she dances in front of the TV. By herself? Yeah. I mean, she tries to get me if I'm around, but I won't do it. But she's pretty good, even just by herself. We could ask her to show both of us. She's my sister. So? It's not like you're getting married. If we learn together, then we could help each other and not look stupid. True. Then maybe we could go together. Is that what you want? Yeah. Not what Ruth wants. Is that what you want? Yeah. But just as friends. Okay. Just friends. Yeah. Friends. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever you are and I'm coming home again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com.